Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is pianist Jason Tonioli, who proves that you can make a really good living just from sheet music sales. First of all, I know you've probably heard the figure that Spotify has 60,000 songs uploaded per day. Where did this come from? Actually from Spotify. But if you look into it, that may not actually be the case. Now, 60,000 per day is basically one every 1.4 seconds. And this is what they said back in 2021. Now, if we go back to April 2019, the figure was about 40,000 a day. So if we look at the latest total number of songs on Spotify, it's about 82 million. And that includes 3.6 million podcasts. If we just go back to November... Spotify has 70 million songs. So if we do a little calculations in the back of a napkin, we find that that's about 706,000 song uploads a month, or about 23,000 a day. So that's just about a third of what Spotify claims. That's still a huge amount, and it's still way too much competition. But don't you feel better that it's only 23,000 instead of 60,000 a day? Just to give you a little perspective on that, 25% of all the videos on YouTube are music videos, and that comes out to about 70 million. So regardless of the platform that you're on, there's a lot of competition. Luckily, most of it is crap, so if you have anything that's good and half-decent marketing, competition might not scare you that much. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. Now, speaking of streaming, loudness has been a big thing for artists and bands and engineers and producers for quite a while. And because of the lust levels that are are now established, everybody sort of thinks that you have to mix to them, and that's not the case. But here's something that you should understand. This comes from mastering engineer Ian Shepard. About 95% of all music online is loudness normalized. In other words, the streaming platforms normalize the level to one particular sound level. And the reason why they want to do that is so every song sounds about the same when they're played up against one another. One doesn't jump out at you, it's too loud, another one isn't too soft. That almost works, but not quite. It turns out that whatever device you buy or whatever streaming service that you enroll with, normalization is automatically enabled. And it's been established that only 17% of people actually go in and change those settings. So when you think about that, there are 435 million music streamers that subscribe to a music service. And that's about 83% of the people that are listening to normalized music no matter what. But that doesn't include YouTube. Remember that YouTube has 2 billion users. Here's the thing. You can't defeat normalization on YouTube. It normalizes everything. 
But there's something that you should know. Most streaming services will normalize up and down. So in other words, if you have Spotify at minus 14 LUFs, for instance, and you supply something that's minus 10 LUFs, they automatically turn it down to minus 14. On the other hand, if you send something that's minus 17, they turn it up to minus 14. That doesn't happen with YouTube. They'll take a loud master and they'll decrease the level. But if you send something that's at minus 18, for instance, it will stay at minus 18. They only normalize down. That's why some videos sound quieter than others on YouTube. So what's the best thing to do? Well, for one thing, don't bother mixing to the LUFS level. And the reason why is no matter what happens, they're going to re-encode it anyway, and it doesn't do you any good. As a matter of fact, it can actually do you some harm because in trying to get that ideal LUFS level, you may in fact be missing some other things that are really important, like how the mix is put together and how dense it is and what the perceived level is. Now, when we use the LUFS level, it's usually the integrated scale that we're using. But Ian Shepard, mastering engineer, says that's not a good idea. He suggests using the short-term loudness and then find the loudest part in the song and make sure that doesn't exceed minus 10 LUFS. And he says at that point, whatever you do is going to be loud enough and it's probably going to sound better because you're going to have plenty of dynamic range and dynamic range is what we really want. How much? Well, ideally anywhere between 9 and 12 dB works pretty well for acoustic music, maybe minus 14. But the fact of the matter is dynamic range is your friend. Luff's level, not so much these days. So aim for a dynamic range and you'll have a much better sounding stream. My guest this week is new age pianist Jason Tonioli, who's managed to do something that everyone thought was impossible these days, and that's crack seven figures on just sheet music sales. He's recorded eight albums and created more than a dozen piano solo books, as well as dozens of individual pieces of sheet music that he self-published. One of Jason's secrets is that he creates music that's simple and fun to play, yet sounds more complicated and advanced than it really is. When Jason isn't playing piano, he's also a well-known thought leader in the banking industry, runs a record label, and is one of the founders of the tour company Amazing Vacations Costa Rica and the travel agency Amazing Vacations USA. During the interview, we talked about how your dream can come later in life, how his sheet music business started, how piano education could be improved, how great songs transcend genres, and much more. I spoke with Jason via Zoom from his office in Utah. Let's go back to when you first started playing. You started playing when you were very young, right? So I, I the first memory I have of music was in kindergarten. And uh, I remember taking lessons, uh, just learning the piano, just like, you know, most kids all take piano lessons for a few months at least before they quit. And I, my mom wanted her kids to learn learn the piano and I was the oldest. And I enjoyed it, I would say, probably for the first six to 12 months. And then all of a sudden, when you realize there's other fun things to be doing outside with your bike or ball, you know, throwing a football, basketball, whatever, uh, all of a sudden you have this, like, I joke with my mom and I call it the piano war. And we had this battle over practicing. And, and I, I can remember many a days where I would be in tears, you know, 
pitching a fit about having to practice because my friends would come over and ring the doorbell and not, well, you can't play until you've done your practicing. And, and it wasn't like I practiced that much. I mean, these people that practice three and four hours a day, that was never me. You know, I would say 30 to 60 minutes was probably, you know, what I would normally do, but, uh, it, it was, it definitely became a fight once, um, I got into second, third, fourth grade and on all the way up until, uh, when I was a high school, uh, sophomore at the end of my sophomore year, I was able to quit. Um, they finally, my mom finally let me quit. And I was told that once I could play every hymn out of a hymn book, then I could quit. And so I, I can remember many times where I'd open the hymn book and I'd be like, look, I can play all these and I'd make it to page 70 or 80. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'd get tired of playing. And so I'd stop doing that. But, uh, and then I, I took my entire junior year of uh, high school off and did not really play piano at all. And then my senior year of high school, I actually went to my back to my piano teacher and said, Hey, I really would like to, to actually learn piano now and practice a little bit. And, and so I, I returned to piano and, and they had like some competitions in the high school at that time for uh, some awards. And, and I actually won the music Sterling scholar award for my high school. And, and I, I started to enjoy the music more, but it was one of those, I think it, every teenager goes through some of those years where they're just dumb and stubborn and think they know better than everybody else. And, you know, luckily I phased out of mine earlier than some. Yeah. But, but what prompted you to want to go back? You know, it was really, it was starting to want to learn how to write music. And I'd never, my, I'd always kind of been classically trained where you just, you know, slap the, the Bach or the Rachmaninoff or Beethoven in front of the person and you played off the sheet music. And that's all I'd ever been taught. Uh, but I had, there was all the, this was pre YouTube time and, and I wanted to learn how to play, you know, boys to men songs and some of these other like Green Day. I remember playing Green Day um, on the on the piano and Metallica on the piano and uh, Pennywise and and Blink One Eighty Two, like some of these like punk heavy metal bands that you would never think to play on the piano. Um, so I was starting to play by ear, and nobody had ever showed me what a guitar tab was or a lead sheet or a fake book. Uh, so it was just completely trying to like figure it out by ear. And I still remember sitting with my cassette tape player one time trying to transcribe a boys to men's song to sing for our, our men's quartet that I was writing. And I'd hit rewind and play, rewind and play to be able to do that. And I just, I don't know, there was just this desire that I had to want to, to figure out how to write music. And, and so I think that's really what made me want to get a little bit, a little bit better at the piano. I, I also took an AP music course uh, that senior year of high school where they started to teach you what a one chord, a four chord, a five chord. I mean, just, just the basic stuff that uh, you, I don't know. It's funny. Once you learn it, you're like, well, that's just so basic. I can't believe my piano teacher didn't teach me that, but I don't know that she knew it because that's not what piano teachers or pedagogy teacher people go through the normal college, at least old school would learn. And they, you know, they would just put the music in front of you and, you know, tell you to play it and tell you to fix your bad notes. You know, you obviously have a good ear and had a good ear early. I've heard this from other really, really great players that a lot of what they did when they were learning, especially classical, wasn't so much that they're reading as that they could remember what it's supposed to sound like. Did that happen to you? Oh, for sure. I used to get in trouble at piano lessons. This was probably one of the reasons I wanted to quit because I'd be, I'd be playing a Beethoven or Mozart or something and I'd, I'd actually change up the song. And, and I'd because I thought it sounded better. And, you know, I wasn't playing for Mozart. He's dead, you know, you know, yeah. Beethoven's dead. Yeah. And I, I still remember, I don't know if it was my mom or my piano teacher. I think it was my piano teacher. 
told me, she says, you know, you, you have to play it the way it was written. That's the way they intended it. And I'm like, that's stupid. You know, I, I'm, I'm playing it for me to enjoy it. And she told me that the these dead composers would roll over in their grave and they'd been known to come back and haunt people <laughs> that changed their music. And I, you know, it was one of those few, you know, one of those one-liners that I think sticks with you that you just laugh about. I'm, I'm sure she didn't mean it, but um, I, I just, I just felt like, man, if, if I was Mozart or Beethoven, I'd, I'd change that too. Cause it's uh, look, it sounds better if I make this into a little jazz chord or I, you know, thicken it up a little bit or <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, people forget that they were writing for their times and, and their, the ear of the times and that changes. So we don't hear that way. We don't hear music the same way as back then. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's so much, it's so fun with, with what YouTube's done as you, you get into the, you're able to like, be a fly on the walls for so many of these really talented musicians. And you, you know, when you meet these really amazing musicians out there, they change what they play all the time. Like they'll never play it the same every time. And, you know, as an audio engineer person, you hope you capture that really the perfect time, but, but I can guarantee you that the person's going to play it a little bit different and, you know, get tired of the way it was and change it up a little bit. And that's part of the joy of music, I think, is being able to, to do what you like to do and what sounds good and what you feel like at the time. I can remember when I was a gigging musician myself and doing five sets a night, you know, six, seven nights a week, and you would get so bored that you would have to change things up because at the end of the week, actually at the end of the month, you're going, oh, I just cannot do this anymore. So, you, you know, you have to do something to keep yourself involved and it would be changing it up as much as possible. Which <laughs> It wasn't good for the audience, but it was good for the players. Absolutely. And, and, and it's just keeping it fun so that you enjoy it. I mean, music is, I mean, I, I think it's just this, when you have, I've found when you have those very best performances that you ever do, it's when there's some sort of emotional tie or, you know, some emotion is in it where you care about it or you're, you know, and it's not so much that you're just this perfectly polished, you know, exactly the way Beethoven wrote it type of thing. It's, you know, this is how I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling sad at the time or I'm feeling more excited or, you know, the tempo is going to change. And I think for musicians, anybody out there, just being, okay, you know, especially piano students, being okay with changing it up a little bit and, and making it so that it feels like you feel. Yeah. What happened after high school then? Uh, after high school, I ended up at Weber State University uh, and uh, I, I enrolled in the music program up there and I lasted three days and, and I dropped out. So uh, I, I ended up going, so I'd been through, I'd started writing music and I, I'd written quite a bit at, actually at that time. So I'd, I'd actually, in the end of my senior year, I'd published a two piano duet um, with a group out of Colorado and thought, you know, I was, I'd hit it big and, you know, they sent me, I still have the check uh, framed over on my wall over here for $2 and 50 cents <laughs> that, you know, I was sure I was going to go big at that point. And so uh, I never cashed it. I just uh, have it on my wall now because I thought, you know, that's going to remind me that, you know, you're doing this because you love it and it's not about the money. So at Weber State, I dropped out of the music program on the third day. Uh, I sat through uh, the class they required every music uh, person to take. And on the third day of class, we made it to half notes and quarter notes <laughs> and what that was. And it was just so painful. And I, I tried to be as positive as I could and went up to the teacher on that third day and says, is there any way that I could, you know, get, you know, do something to get a little bit more out of this class. I really want to do the orchestration class. He's like, Oh, you can't do, you can't learn about orchestration until the third or fourth year of your, your degree. And I'm like, well, I'm published and I'm already trying to write stuff for movies and 
and, and I'm already doing it. I, and I already bought the book and I'm going through it on my own. He's like, no, we, we can't teach you any of that for three years. And I just thought that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I asked him, well, he says, at very least, could I, you know, could you assign me each day to maybe teach five minutes or 10 minutes of class and I can help teach about half notes and quarter notes and, and half rests. And, and he just like the, the guy got so offended. And I was, I was really trying to be as nice as I could. And I just thought, you know what, this is not for me. Mm. If this is what music is going to be about and that, you know, you're not worthy to be able to, to write, you know, an orchestration or something until, you know, you think I'm good enough. I don't want any part of it. So I, I walked over, I, I, switched over to the marketing department at, at the school. And frankly, that was the best thing I ever did from a music career standpoint is, is I, I got my degree in business and marketing and learned how to do that. I spent 12 years in the banking industry um, as a marketing director, got to spend money on billboards and newspaper ads back when they were a thing and, you know, built the first websites for these banks and, you know, very beginning of Google ads and Facebook ads back when they cost, you know, a penny per 10,000 people that you could get. And it was, it was the the golden age of marketing. It was, you know, I really had had a great time up through about 2012, uh, 12 years after that, you know, doing that. And then I left and started a software company and it was a banking software, did really well with that for about five years, sold that, semi-retired, I guess. And then I thought, you know, I'll spend a little bit more time on music. And, and I basically, amazingly, I've proven that um, if you, if you're a good marketer and you know your numbers and you're smart about your decisions that you make, um, it's possible to do seven figures as a musician and not do a single gig in a whole year. I would have never believed it. The banker in me is like, that's insane. You're, you need to go to the loony bin, but, um, we did it last year. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, everybody thinks that cheap music is dead and you've proven that that's not the case. Uh, yeah. And I, I still don't believe it. Like the, the banker, you know, spreadsheet guy in me still says there's, there's no way that you can do you know, make, make a living on sheet music. And uh, we literally shipped uh, over 28,000 packages last year of, of music to different places all over the world. Wow. Well, okay. So wait a second. So you sell your software company and you decide you're going to come back into music somehow, but this all had to evolve. How did it start? You know, all, even up through banking, when I was at the bank, I was, um, I was playing piano and writing books. I'd actually published books because I, through the marketing stuff, I, I was exposed to a lot of printers because we were doing, you know, bank statements and, you know, all kind. I mean, I just, I, I was in this really unique spot where I was exposed to so many different areas and different parts of business. And so uh, I'd been writing music and I actually, that's how I got my wife to, uh, to date me. I took her, a, I took her a book of sheet music and, you know, sheet protectors and, and gave it to her on Valentine's day. And, you know, and, and next thing we know, six months later, we're married, you know? Ah, that's uh, awesome. So my first book is actually, was actually for her. And I, I didn't really intend to ever make a lot of money with it, but I'd written a lot of songs and the, the music store was like, well, you should put that in a book. So I went and I printed like 50 copies of a book. It had a bunch of flowers on it. I called it wedding day. It wasn't wedding music at all. So, I mean, <laughs> terrible marketing blunder right there. I mean, just, you know, if I could have messed up the marketing any better, I could have, I couldn't have tried to mess it up any worse than I did. <clears throat> but the music store is like, yeah, let us try selling it. And like a week and a half later, like, Hey, we sold out of your books. Can you bring us some more? And I had no intention of even printing more, but I thought, well, okay, people liked it. So I took it out and I went to a couple other music stores and just said, Hey, this other store sold a bunch of my books. They, I guess it's okay. You want to look at it? And they took some books. And <clears throat> next thing I know is, you know, I'd sold 500 copies of this book that 
had nothing to do with wedding songs, but was called wedding day. And it was just kind of these easy listening piano music stuff that puts people, you know, get it putting people to sleep with a good melody in it. All your music. Yeah. Totally original music and just nice to listen to. And, and then I thought, well, I've got a bunch of Christmas songs I've done over the last few years. I'll put those in a book and see if they want to take those. And those sold like hotcakes. And so I was starting to think, well, okay, I'm breaking even. This is kind of cool. I thought it was going to be, you know, most people's hobbies don't break even. So I thought this is at least better than me going and spending money and not coming out with anything. And then the following year after I did the Christmas one, I thought, well, I, I get asked to play in church all the time. And so I'll just, I've got a bunch of hymn arrangements. I'll just put those in a book and slap them together. And next thing I know, I got a book of hymn arrangements and that one did 10 times what the Christmas one did. And all of a sudden I'm making money. Wow. At that time, I would just, I went to all of the music stores up and down the Utah Wasatch Front Mountain range here up into Idaho and and everybody was like, oh, it's so great to have some fresh hymn arrangements. This is so great. And oh, by the way, I got these other two things. So now I was selling three books and and making more, you know, making enough to all of a sudden I got three, four or five thousand dollars sitting in the bank. And now I could actually pay for the the printing up front rather than having to put it on the credit card and hope that I could sell some books. You know, fast forward, you know, five years after that, I'd recorded at the studio with Chuck Myers. Uh, it's uh, so I met him through a guy named Ray Kimber, um, who does Kimber Cable for mm. any audio files out there. That's you know really fancy speaker and microphones and incredible guy. Uh, he introduced me to Chuck Myers, who owns the studio that he's done stuff for. Gosh, Sony uh, video, Sony PlayStation video games, and um, Warner Brothers and Disney he did all the D Disney Infinity projects. So introduced me to him, and then Chuck introduced me to John Schmidt, who's the guy that's part of the Piano Guys group that's gone huge. And so all of those people have been friends over the years. And Chuck was like, well, why don't you just come record some of your books in the studio? You know, John's recording here, come record here too. And next thing I go, no, I've got an album of Christmas music, but I, the marketing and guy in me said, well, I'm not going to, nobody's going to buy these music CDs from me. Cause I just know too many musicians that buy a bunch of CDs. They put their heart into that album. They spend thousands of dollars and and frankly, they just sell, you know, maybe a hundred CDs to friends, family, and fools. And then the rest of them sit in a box in their basement. Right. Yep. And, and I thought, well, I've got all these contacts at the bank. What I'll do is I'll let them put their logo on the, the CD for Christmas songs and they'll buy, you know, 2000 CDs at a time from me and I'll just sell them for four or five bucks a piece and I'll make three or $4 and they can use it as a Christmas gift that they send to all their bank customers. And next thing I know, I'm, uh, you know, I made a couple phone calls and had a dozen or more banks and I'm, I'm printing 20,000 CDs that are all prepaid for. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, this made money. This is a good deal. Wow. <laughs> and then that, I just plowed everything, pretty much everything I did for the first 10 years made um, at least profit wise, plowed it back into recording studio time, um, doing, you know, writing more music, printing books and, and just, you know, people ask, well, how did you get, you know, it's, it's this 20, it's really a 20 year overnight success that's kind of been, it's never, you know, I don't think there's really a lot of overnight successes that are actually are, because there's a lot of time that goes into to helping somebody be successful. You know, you mentioned before about fresh music, fresh arrangements, and it got me thinking where, yeah, I guess that's true. I, I guess traditional sheet music companies kind of rely on on their catalog and or just kind of recycle what they have so if there's something new that comes out yeah I'm, I'm sure that that's and if it's good 
yeah, there'd be a market for it. But one of the other things that I've learned, and I, this is probably my secret sauce, so I'm, here you go, giving it all away. I feel like a lot of the music that's out there with the big publishers, you know, it's it sounds nice and it's fine, but I don't know that there's a lot of these composers that put a lot of thought sometimes into the playability of a song. And and I still remember being being down at the recording studio one time, and I think John Schmidt was there with me, and and Chuck was there, and and I I played a song on the piano, and and I apologized. I'm like, you know, it's really simple. It's not near as fancy as what you're doing, John and, and Chuck, you know, you're doing all these fancy, you know, orchestra scores and he's, and Chuck stopped me. He says, don't ever apologize for something being simple. You know, he says, it's harder to actually write a simple song and have it be as beautiful as what you just did. Then, you know, it's really easy to just throw lots of notes in there and cover up the lack of simplicity. But he's like, you, if you can keep things simple and figure out how to master that people will love your music. Uh, and I think, as I've written, I, I still remember him talking to me about that. And I, I've really tried to approach most of my arrangements now as saying, okay, can I sit down and play this without having to practice my guts out in order, you know, it's, it's neat that you can do some fancy thing on the piano or the guitar. And, you know, it's cool to watch it a couple of times, but other people, you probably aren't going to take the time you did to do the cool thing, you know, the hard thing on the piano. So if I can make it playable so that anybody could sit down without having to stress out and worry about it. And I think, it's helping somebody be successful at the piano and with that music that they're playing is really the secret sauce of what I've tried to do, you know, even down to the page turns, like, okay, is this a good page turn spot moving measures? So, Hey, that's, it's not going to like stress them out to have to memorize two measures in order to make this dumb page turn, you know, just make it easy to play. So you're not nervous. Do you then write for a certain level of a skill level of players? So forever, I just kind of had, this is the way my music was. And I did 12 or 13 books that were, I would call them intermediate, early advanced. So, you know, it's not the big note easy. And, but I kept getting tons and tons of people saying, well, you please write easier songs for kind of the, for really more of a student that um, I use the hymn book as kind of a basic measure of where somebody can play on the piano. And and so there's that like stepping stone area where you got learning some notes and then you're learning the easy stuff that really is kind of clunky on the piano. And then there's, okay, I can play a hymn book and then you're getting into the fancier stuff. And, and so the, I, last year I actually did an easier piano or, or easier piano hymns and easier Christmas songs. That was, it's not like big note easy, but it's that helping people learn finger patterns and just, you know, make it so it's not big, long stretches for, you know, kids with little hands even and intentionally made it. So it was easy, but beautiful. And I actually can, it was fun doing it because I'd sit back and I'd play it on the piano and it was, it was good enough that I wouldn't be embarrassed to play it in a concert, even like for people. Yeah. It's easy. It's, it's not hard to do. And, and really that um, it, it's been interesting to see how that book has just, I've done 10 times the number of sales on that book, even than the, the other, you know, 12, 13 books that I've done that, people love, but it, you know, I just opened up my market to another group to help them be successful. And then um, once they can play that, then they're, they've graduated and can play the other stuff that I've done. So then are you also thinking about helping them maybe subconsciously with learning technique as they learn these songs? I would say there's, there's some styles in kind of that new age piano, you know, a lot of the arpeggios, little bit finger patterns that happen in the left hands and the, bringing the melody out in the right hand. So there's, there's absolutely um, technique that's, that's taught 
you know, but am I intentionally trying to teach all the finger patterns? No, but uh, there's, if, if I wanted to actually look at it from a college like course level, I, I'm for sure doing that, but it's totally unintentional. It's more trying to teach somebody how to, to build confidence and help them sound way better than, you know, if, if I feel like I'm a success, if I can have the music sound hard, but have it be actually really easy to play, then I've been really successful. Considering where you're coming from and how you're writing and how you're always thinking about the simplicity of it and the, the playability of it, mm-hmm. better word, do you think that perhaps piano education can be improved? Absolutely. Um, I, I think there's it, it's there's a lot of incredible piano teachers and there's there's a lot of programs out there that I think are really, really good. It's been really interesting to go and see how YouTube has just completely revolutionized how some people have learned. I mean, you can just go online. I mean, you got kids with little blinking dots all over. You got video games where they can, you know, from guitar to, you know, you know, these dance dance revolution games, it's just music and rhythm and and notes has become the teaching methods have been gamified, obviously. And I think in a lot of ways, some of the teachers out there have not kept up with the times where it's been this, you know, we're this classically trained, we have to follow the music. And then you've got others that have evolved and have really done a good job of making the music fun for the kids. I, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting over the next five to 10 years, as we get into this immersive, you know, metaverse and, you know, as that evolves, it's going to be really interesting to see how, how music can play a part in that. I think there's a long ways to go. I, I wish uh, somebody would have told me what a fake book was back when I was in high school. Um, I assume they existed, but uh, I had no idea that you could just have a one-line melody with a chord. I was always trying to figure out, and I could never figure out all these fancy hard chords back when I was learning piano. And I've I've actually taught all my kids my my kids what those are, and I'll we'll pull up a guitar tab, and I've like my daughter who's a ninth grader, I she can pull up any guitar tab now and with her ear, so she's inherited a lot of the good ear. So she can, I, I always call it like, you know, you teach your right hand how to sing. I mean, everybody's like, well, how do you do that with your hands? Well, you just teach your hand how to sing. First of all, like you can sing a song, right? Well, yeah. Well, how did you do that? Well, I just did it. Well, teach your hand, how to, your fingers, how to sing in that right hand. And then all you just got to do is figure out the chord. And it's the same as singing. You just have to develop it over time. And my daughter can play any, like she's playing songs off the radio better than I was at age 25 when I first started to discover what a fake book was and a lead sheet. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I went to Berkeley, I, I was already, let's see, I was about 24 when I went to Berkeley and I had no idea what a fake book was. I was playing rock bands. I was a professional musician cause I was making money doing it. But that being said, I had no idea what a fake book was and everybody, you didn't have to buy it, but everybody bought one anyway. The real book was called, and the real book basically had every jazz standard you can think of in a, the, the fake book form. And that was sort of the Bible of every player at Berkeley. You, you know, if you had a real book, you can go and play any gig for the most part, if there are other Berkeley players anyway. Hmm. But I had no idea that, that something like that even existed. It just op- it opens your world when you find that or, you, you know, you hear the music that's out there and when they start getting a little fancier on some of the chords, it's like, it's really hard to get some of those clashing harmonies to figure it out by ear. And all of a sudden somebody like puts it in front of you. Oh my gosh. If I stay on any of these four or five notes, I can do this. Wow. You know, whole new world. 
You know, you mentioned about going to school and, and being disgruntled after three days. And it's interesting because, again, I went to Berkeley, and one of the interesting traits about that is if you're any good, you don't graduate. <laughs> you get a gig before then. But the best courses, they actually front-loaded. So there were all the harmony classes, for instance, which were wonderful, and the arrangement classes, some of them were kind of basic, but nonetheless, it, it was the basics that you needed. So everything was front-loaded in the beginning, and then as you went on, you specialized. But the specialty was, in my case, it was less interesting. I could see in the future. I only went four semesters, I think. And I could see into the future thinking, eh, you know, I think I have what I need here. But that's the, the difference between a true music school, at least back then, and what you might have with a college that has a music program. Right. But I, and honestly, as I look back on that, I'm, I'm so grateful that I didn't go through kind of a structured music program because during that time when I was really starting to write a lot more music, um, I think had I known what the rules were supposed to be or had I known the chord structure and some of the stuff that, you know, would have for sure made some of my songs better, it forced me to struggle through and, and just listen to what it was supposed to sound like and what it felt like. And I, and I think as I look on, on a lot of my music, it's, you know, I, I kind of have written a lot. Of, I mean, it's very similar and, you know, to some other people, but I don't have that formal training that kind of steered me in a, in a certain direction, a jazz or a whatever it was, you know, taking a lot of rock and punk and, uh, you know, even some rap songs. I still remember like some of the Beastie Boys stuff. I'd jam that out on the piano and, you know, I enjoyed it, but some of that still comes out in, into this like soft piano. One of my favorite, um, I don't do very many gigs, but I've played weddings sometimes. And um, I was playing at a wedding and playing some Bon Jovi and Metallica. And I had this like 80 year old little grandma just shuffle up to me. And she came up to ask me, you know, what is that beautiful song you're doing? <laughs> and I was like, uh, it's called living on a prayer. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and well, then she goes, well, what was that one before? Oh, that's nothing else matters from Metallica. <laughs> so, you know, and the fact that you can take, you know, and have it be like this beautiful thing, you know, pull the melody out of that, strip it out and make it beautiful. Uh, I mean, that's really the sign of a, an incredible song. That's, that's why I think even in the rock, you know, and in, in even in the punk genre where they're, you know, playing as fast as they can, when you get a good melody, those songs are timeless. They, they're fun to, to listen to. It's presentation. And the acceptability depends on the presentation to particular audiences. Yep. Even 80-year-old grandmas will like you. Yeah, there it <laughs> so. goes. There it goes. You write an incredible amount of music. Do you ever feel like you're getting a block or you're repeating yourself? Sometimes uh, the repeating yourself, it will happen for sure. Uh, there's times where it absolutely goes in spurts where I'll knock out 10 to 20 songs in a couple of weeks. And there's other, there's type, I'll go months sometimes without ever writing a song. You know, I'll noodle around on stuff, but um, with all of the business venture stuff that I'm going, I'm running a travel agency. I've got a tour company in Costa Rica. Um, I've got a, a book publishing company that's even separate from music books. Uh, I mean, really it's four to five different businesses. And so I get pulled into meetings. And so I actually have to schedule time to write music. And a lot of that happens late at night. I, I try to have about four to six hours a week scheduled to try and at least do important things. And I try to have that be music, but you know, if, if I can write one song a week, sometimes I'm doing good. That's still a good output for a lot of people. So 
That's four a month. That's still doing pretty good. Right. And I think the key is, is uh, I've learned is when you're trying to find those songs, be, you know, if, if you're in the shower and you're singing and something, or you're laying in bed, like uh, the last one I just wrote, it was like 1140 at night. And um, I was really tired and tune popped in my head. And I'm just like, ah. I was almost frustrated about it. Like, and I got up and I penciled it all out and, you know, 15 minutes later, uh, went back to bed. But if you, if you're willing to capture those things, I think, I think they come more often to you. If you, if you just ignore those little promptings or the spirit or whatever you want to call it, have those ideas that pop in your head, even if it's like a three or four note little melody, go write it down. Cause you never know that five years late down the road, when you're like flipping through a book, you're like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And then you write the next three measures. All right. Last question, Jason, what's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you? Best piece of advice. I think it's something I've really more learned over time in observing a lot of successful people and, and not be, I think it's, and it's, I, I can't like identify one moment, but realizing that you can do about anything that you want, if you'll put your mind to it. And if you have a little bit of talent and I'd probably, probably where that really sunk in with me is I, I was actually at the recording studio one time and that somebody had brought up, there'd been a big layoff where like hundreds of people had been laid off of this company and, and we were talking about it right before I went in to record and, and Chuck's like, he goes, people all the time say, Chuck, how do you do this? You, you do a project and you get fired every time. You know, they say, good job. You, you just nailed it. This was so good. Best you've ever done. And oh, by the way, you're fired because the project's over. And he's like, people give me a hard time. He says, I don't know how you guys go to your, you know, eight hour a day job. And then all of a sudden the next morning you could show up and there's a pink slip sitting there waiting for you. He goes, you know, people need to realize that they can be the master of their own ship. And, and if you're wanting to, whatever it is you're wanting to do, whether it's music or, or whatever, it's way better off being your own boss and having control of that ship rather than, you know, assuming that somebody else is going to do the work or provide the job or provide the place for you to come work every day. And, and that's why I would say, you know, just in learning, just believe in yourself and, and don't be afraid to, to take a little bit of a risk and, and don't assume that just because you have some cushy, safe job that there's not a whole lot more risk that you're just pretending like doesn't exist there. You can find out more about Jason at Tonioli.com. That's Tonioli, T-O-N-I-O-L-I.com, T-O-N-I-O-L-I.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you can also find a sign in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 